is it about social media that makes us our hottest, stupidest, cruelest selves? I've always wondered whether my relationship to Twitter is entirely healthy, and rather than spending money on a therapist to help me explore this issue, I instead invited Richard Seymour, the author of The Twittering Machine, to help me work it out. We talked about trolling, jorts the cat, feet guys, and more. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So I really hate to admit how reluctant I was to read The Twittering Machine, and it had been recommended to me by my partner, by my friends, and I just couldn't bear to open it up because I was scared that I would see a mirror to myself. Mm. Um, so what, what made you want to open up this particular box of frogs? I think there's a number of things. I mean, it, it's, it's partly a book about writing, um, and the underlying conceit is essentially we're writing more than we ever have in history, uh, but it's a very different kind of writing machine. It used to be you would have a hierarchy of texts, you know, the Holy Bible, the Constitution, something from which authority flows, all the way down to your green ink letters to the editors or your diaries or whatever. And obviously that's being upended. And writing now is structured not around alphabets, uh, spoken word, but uh, around marks, digital marks that are essentially the equivalent of, let's say, seismographic writing or pictograms, logograms, etc. You're going to have to explain what some of those things are. Okay, well, just, um, uh, you know, there's a progress myth of modernity that mm -hmm. goes back to the Cold War. Um, uh, uh, experts in writing would say, well, obviously, alphabetic writing is superior, and it's mm -hmm. the, what writing is supposed to be. And all these uh, symbols that Chinese writing uses, like, um, uh, for example, a little uh, symbol that is used to represent a whole word, um, a, a logogram, Mm -hmm. um, or an idea, an ideogram, uh, or um, in some languages uh, or some older languages, you would get pictograms, like little pictures. That, you know, and you have that now with Twitter, you have smileys. Um, so we use pictograms now um, in, in, in a different way. But the idea was that alphabetic writing was what writing was supposed to be because basically each letter represents a particular kind of vocal sound. It gives you the ability to fearfully and accurately represent human speech. Um, that was quite an idealized version of what human speech actually is. Um, it's a, sort of a, a traditional masculine logocentric idea of speech because a lot of what's going on in speech is uh, eye contact, it's tone. If you're Bengali, it's gesticulating. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's true. Of, I mean, I come from Northern Ireland. Gesticulation is very important there. I've um, always said that the Irish are the Bengalis of Europe, but we can address that <laughs> another time. Um, so, yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, there was this idea that the alphabet was where everything was going, and that was how political, cultural authority should work. The campaigns for mass literacy, also the fear of mass literacy, revolved around how that would restructure political power. Um, and you can go back even to uh, the fear that women would read too much um, and uh, they would get crazy ideas. I mean, this wasn't you know a, a sort of marginal, it wasn't a joke. Mm. There was a literal fear that women reading too much could be, and not just women, poor people too. Um, I mean, the specific idea with women is that it would kind of, you know, scramble your womb, you know, that you, yeah. you'd read too much, you'd develop an, an interest in academia or ideas, and you'd become hysterical, or you'd become malformed as a woman, and you wouldn't be able to perform your social functions as a woman, or your reproductive functions. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, um, uh, I mean, maybe there was a sort of kernel behind that fear that women would become less interested in being subservient to men and producing babies and whatever. 
but obviously that's a it's it's a crazy idea, but crazy ideas often have some little nugget that they're latched onto. But anyway, what we're having now is a situation where for the last 40, 50 years, the revolution in information and communications technologies has rewritten writing. Um, so everything is now structured by digital writing, ones and zeros, whatever. Um, and everything you see on the internet is writing, um, as Sandy Baldwin, uh, authority I call on a lot in the book, um, puts it. So when you see on your computer, uh, if you have a look, you'll see windows, you'll see folders, you'll see all, right. What you're looking at there is, I forget the name of uh, the author who says this, uh, it's described as leaky abstractions. That is an abstract representation, an idealized representation of electrical processes working on the basis of digital writing and computerized writing. Um, and the reason it's a leaky abstraction is because it often goes wrong. So it looks very smooth and so on. So everything you're seeing and doing is organized by writing. That includes the visual images that you're seeing. And when you click and pause and you hover, um, you're producing writing because that is inscribed in some uh, record of data, which is then used to sell you stuff and manipulate your behavior. So there is an order of writing that is emerging and it coincides with the massive expansion of literacy in, in the writerly sense um, until the late 20th century. Most people were literate in the sense of reading. You know, If you did any kind of writing, it was journaling or scrapbooking or something like that. And increasingly because of the requirements of the workplace, we're spending most of our working days interfacing with the computer, writing stuff down. And then during toilet breaks, we're on our phones, writing stuff down. And then during lunch, we're on our phones, writing stuff down. And tube breaks, uh, journeys back home, we're writing stuff down. During dinner at home, um, according to some surveys, during bad sex, I assume bad sex, I would consider that quite rude. Uh, you're writing something down. So- um, You're like three out of 10 room for improvement, or is it more like you're, you're WhatsApping someone? Do you know what? I'd never asked. Um, I never, it never occurred to me to consider what they might be doing. I would just think that would be rude. Anyway, this, the, what I'm saying is that this um, social industry that has emerged, the platforms, um, I mean, social media is polite propaganda. You know, all media is social, all technology is social. What's really going on here is an industry design uh, that is designed around and designs our social life. Uh, through algorithms and protocols and what have you. These platforms amount to a collective open-air writing experiment uh, that we're all participating in. And so the question is, from that point of view, if the basis of the modern nation-state is print capitalism... The so alphabet, the idea that you've got newspapers which reflect the idea of the nation back to the people uh, and that's how you yeah, occupy and books this imagined and, community. And everything else, yeah, exactly. You've got your imagined community. If that's the case... Uh, what kind of nation are we writing ourselves into and why does it seem so volatile? Um, am I allowed to swear on this show? You probably? absolutely are. Great, fantastic. So um, anyway, that's one part of it is the writing aspect of it. There's another part of it which is a reflection on evil, um, mm -hmm. straightforwardly, uh, because a lot of what I'm doing in the book is reflecting on people behaving appallingly on the internet uh, in ways that are often bound up with a mistaken belief in one's own virtue. Mm -hmm. And there's always a comfort, as Christians know very well, uh, in confusing aggression with virtue. Um, and so, you know, what I was interested in particularly was um, this strange twisted dialectic, um, a spiral between, on the one hand, you've got the trolls, the sadists. Um, you know, quite often you would see trolling as being affiliated with the right. 
And I think there's some uh, sort of leaning in that direction, you know, because the whole point about this trolling is that you do things that liberal civilization says that's not done. Mm-hmm. The liberal superego frowns on, you know, you're provoking this person with your racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, ableist, whatever behavior. And you get a kick out of doing it because the whole point is people are going, how could you? How dare you? Um, you uh, Grief trolling, for example, mm. a, a well-known phenomenon where you go and find a grieving family and like start making fun of their dead kid, you know. Um, the whole pleasure of that is the transgressive pleasure of it, first of all, um, that uh, is collectivized and anonymized. You know, you're all, trolls are all tendentiously anonymized in that sense. Um, and so there's the pleasure of um, the fact that they, they wouldn't expect it. They don't understand why you would do that. And so they, they and this is the crucial thing. For the trolls, the idiom is exploitable characteristics. Anything that you let go about yourself that is a vulnerability mm. is an exploitable characteristic. Having a dead child is an exploitable characteristic. Actually, since we're all on the internet, all public figures with our own effective PR strategies, whether we're trying to build writerly careers or whatever, it doesn't matter. We're all public personas, we have PR strategies. Basically, what we're doing is handing over a list of exploitable characteristics for sadists and you know people who just want to get a, a buzz out of being part of this anonymized bullying collective. I've always tried to work out how ideologically invested um, the people who racially abuse me are, and I've never been able to get a grip on it. Are you calling me a low IQ Bengali or a Paki or telling me to go home or telling me to kill myself or saying you're going to set me on fire or whatever it is because you have a genuine and sincere belief in my racial inferiority? Or is racism merely the shocking thing that you've latched onto because you view it as transgressive? Um, And I've, I've actually tried to talk to some of these people. I've said, okay, let's go. You, you... Um, think that I should be deported or thrown out of a helicopter and you tell me this, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you say it to my face? And they absolutely never do. And I find that frustrating because it means that I can't get a grip on who they are at all. Well, from what I've seen of your feed and the responses that you get, um, the people who are uh, provoking you in this way seem to be more libidinally invested than your average troll. Mm. The whole point of the troll is you're not supposed to care. Now, that's obviously a lie. That's a mask. And quite often the mask, uh, when you look into the biographies of the prominent trolls, um, quite often the mask is has something to do with um, their way of managing some sort of um, pain that they have experienced as a result of sadistic and predatorial others, predatory others. Um, so there's that aspect of it, but then there's also the other aspect of it. And here is where I become critical of the left, um, uh, which is the, the sort of... I hate to use this language, but woke witch hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm using this language. I'm, there's a there is a better language, I'm sure, but you sort of know what I mean. There's a sense in which somebody says something that transgresses our mores, and we're rightly uh, annoyed about this and a bit offended. Um, but there's a sense in which it becomes mm. a form of trolling in itself. And I remember as a young Twitter user myself, uh, yay, long ages ago, uh, back in 2011 or something. Back when it was just you and Catelyn Moran. Right. Or, uh, yeah, or um, that um, uh, sort of, uh, that guy who wrote Matilda, do you remember him? The Australian musician, comedian? 
never mind. Let's cut this bit out of the show because it's going to cause. Yeah, that's the one. I used to okay. troll him, um, and the problem was he was very trollable. And what what my point would be about that was that partly. I was genuinely offended because I thought he had some dodgy views about Muslims, etc. And I had at that point an idea of myself as, you know, like the sort of um, uh, counter crusader, you know, mm -hmm. like I was going to fight the Islamophobes, which actually, given what we went through in the 2000s, wasn't a worse place mm -hmm. to be in. Um, terrifying period. But anyway, um, uh, there was also an element of sadistic pleasure mm -hmm. in tormenting him and laughing at, you know, like, and that was sanctified by how stupid and um, uh, oblivious and racist he was being. Um, so what, what were the kinds of things he would say and how would you respond to them? Just to give I me a picture. Can't, I can't even begin to recall mm. um, in precise terms. And frankly, I'm not sure that if I looked at that now, I would say that I, thought he, that I still thought he was being racist. Mm. I think maybe he was being obtuse. Mm. But I, I, I'm just saying that's an example, and I'm saying that partly to implicate myself. Mm. So as soon as I start moralizing about the internet, there's two things I want to do. One is to look for the contradiction. Mm -hmm. What's the other side of this? Two is, in what way am I implicated? Because otherwise I'm you know, uh, sitting on high and giving mm -hmm. people lectures. And why would I be doing that when I'm on Twitter every day? Mm -hmm. and Facebook and Instagram uh, and also TikTok. But <laughs> um, TikTok is a very interesting medium. It's it's the only medium where I've seen people throw slices of cheese at their baby's faces for entertainment. Um, I mean, I just do that out of frustration um, and have a baby or cheese slices for that matter. Um, we're going to come to TikTok in a second, okay. but I suppose the, the thing that maybe I, I want to press on here is what then for you was the moment where you were able to step outside yourself mm -hmm. and your behavior and that compulsion to demonstrate your virtue mm -hmm. or your political righteousness and then be able to implicate yourself and look at your own behavior? When did that, I guess I would call it like a, a useful dissociation happen? I would just call it depression. Um, and, uh, you know, psychoanalysis would often say, when the uh, analyzand is depressed, that's when you're likely to see something changed. And I would say that um, uh, this would have been around 2015 when uh, I was still in the backwash of uh, some of your uh, listeners and viewers will know what I'm talking about. The implosion of a Trotskyist group that I was a, a member of and um, personal ramifications and hadn't really rebuilt myself. Um, and I was just finishing up at the LSE, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to be an academic because it looked like a miserable vocation to me. No offense to the academics. Um, and um, I had said a number of things on the internet, something rather disobliging about Simon Weston, which I don't care to repeat, um, and something else about uh, an Israeli occupier uh, who, was, who offended me by mm. his words. Um, and I said that he should have his throat cut. Mm. And that was reported in the papers as this guy saying Jews should have their throat cuts. And I thought, first of all, I, th I was uh, I, enraged by the offensive in, in imputation of anti-Semitism. Mm. But then I thought, well, I gave them means to do this. I said this. Was that, and was, was and, and can about... I be so sure there isn't an anti-Semitic unconscious there? All of that sort of stuff. And was, was there something about Twitter and its ability to publish the violent thought that you have, which almost dragged it out of you. Because I find myself getting angrier and more um, cruel in some ways on Twitter. And it's an instinct I have to check on, check in myself. And it's not 
hugely reflective of how I think about people when I encounter them in the real world. No, it's it's totally different. Um, and uh, you know, we can come to uh, what you're actually encountering on on Twitter. These comments were made on Facebook, by the way. Mm. Um, the Twittering machine is a useful metaphor, but I, I'm saying that, and Twitter happens to be one of the most toxic mm. um, environments. Um, I think somebody famously put it, Instagram, uh, the message of accounts on Instagram is, I had a better holiday than you. Um, on Facebook, it's my children are better than you uh, or yours. And on Twitter, it's my ideology is called less people than your ideology. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, basically, I think that um, I don't think it dragged it out of me. I think rather what happened in those instances was I was confronted with something that annoyed me politically um, and that I got myself into a righteous anger about. And I took the shortcut of saying something brutally offensive. Now, I am not, you know, I'm, I'm not wearing uh, the um, hair shirt or whatever. Mm. I'm not um, groveling about this. Uh, and I think there's a certain amount of pious bullshit in the responses. How could you say such a thing? Like, are you on the internet? Are you in real life? You know, if you go to a pub with your mates, you're going to hear some stuff that's pretty offensive. I mean, this is why we have uh, the concept of privacy because, you know, like um, you have a row with your partner or with your folks. Would you ever like people to see what you're like in those moments? You know, like when you, you lose your shit or you appear truly crazy or vulnerable or something? I think people would be surprised that my passive aggressive sulks can go on for three weeks. Uh, that's quite impressive. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's um, a real combination of both repression and... Uh, utter certainty in being right, and that is a whew, yeah great combo. Well, I mean, you got to imagine what it would be like to filter that through Twitter if you were doing that on Twitter. Um, that would be, I think, I think you might crash the internet. <laughs> um, but anyway, just to sort of wrap up that thought somewhat, um, I ended up sort of looking at examples of people being um, not trolled, but witch hunted um, and often on the basis of spurious or confected offenses, um, people accused of having, uh, of being pedophiles, uh, of being abusers, uh, falsely, entirely falsely and on the basis of no, nobody could have had any reasonable basis for inferring that and being driven to suicide by the campaigns against them. And the point was, what was interesting was the people who were drawn into that who didn't invent the accusation, but had no reason to believe it. But the more anonymous the accusation was, right, mm. the less detail you had about the person either making the accusation or the person on the end of it, the more credible it seemed. And the more it seemed like, if I don't say something, uh, A, you know, what, shouldn't I say something And uh, because, you know, this is bad. I have a moral duty to say something. Right. So you feel that compulsion on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, there, but for the grace of God goes I. I mean, if I don't uh, get get on side with the mob, you know, maybe they'll come after me next. Now, I'm not saying it works literally that way, but there's a structure. And so there's a sense in which um, there's um, a kind of disavowed enjoyment, a disavowed trolling going on. Um, and some of my favorite examples of this would be, uh, for example, Millie Bobby Brown uh, mm. was relentlessly trolled and I think left Twitter because people were calling her a homophobe and Islamophobe. Millie Bobby Brown is the girl from Stranger Things. That's right. Yeah. Um, and um, 
she had been accused of by you know like this is completely compacted it's completely made up but she'd been accused of walking up to a muslim woman ripping off her hijab stamping on it uh, and like being insulting and so on and um i think a lot of people who who watch Stranger Things and maybe know a little bit about the actor would probably have thought, yeah, that sounds like bullshit to me. But it sounds incredibly outlandish. Yeah, it does. Um, uh, and you know, even if even if she were racist in that way, which I doubt she is, but even if she were, I doubt she would perform it in that way because she's mega famous. Right, exactly. So there's that, and then sort of little other myths attach themselves to to that. You know, that she was a homophobe, uh, when in fact she had spoken out in favor of uh, like LGBTQT rights. You know, like she was uh, vocally pro-trans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, this became a kind of a campaign of um, moralizing fury combined with tacit, illicit, um, uh, what Lacanians would call chouissance, um, sort of a kind of uh, over-the-top enjoyment, okay. a destructive enjoyment. Um, and that's what um, uh, interested me there. And I was interested in in that, but partly because of people I'd seen on the uh, receiving end of that, you know, like who I felt were done an injustice. Um, and partly because I realized that I was, um, you know, just like anybody else, like uh, susceptible to the allure of that. And then also there would be cases, and this is where it becomes a reflection on the, the, the point about evil human evil. There'd be cases like, for example, uh, Marina Lolina, um, uh, who um, recorded uh, her, allegedly her best friend being raped, mm. um, broadcast it on the internet. Her argument in court, what she told the police and prosecutors was, I was, uh, he, he started doing that. Um, and, uh, I started recording it in the idea that maybe broadcasting it basically mm. in the idea that maybe somebody would do something like call the police. Don't know why she couldn't call the police mm. herself. And then I got wrapped up in the likes. Oof. Um, there were guys watching in Periscope saying, film it, film it. Let me see. You got to think about uh, what's going on there because, um, of course, I could use, turn this into a kind of moral discourse about the internet and its evils, you know. But that wasn't just the internet. The internet facilitated certain connections. Basically, the social industry commodifies every part of human experience that it can, right? And this happened to be one uh, part of the darkness, but regularly other forms, you know. Um, uh, and um, the interesting thing was, first of all, the character of these likes. This wasn't bystander syndrome. There was a kind of detached involvement. Maybe some of them didn't realize that what they were seeing was a rape, but I find that hard to believe given what was going on. But I think there was a kind of a similar enjoyment to that of trolls. Troll, trolling is based on the ethic of detachment, disidentification. You're suffering, and my strategic response to that is to disidentify and to say, you're being a snowflake, you're being ridiculous, your suffering is funny, and therefore I'm invulnerable. I can't be touched. I think there's also something about the way in which that is then encoded within the invisible, unwritten rules of internet humor. And I remember yeah. being in, I don't know, first or second year of university or something, you're just going through those listicles of like, ah, funniest videos or whatever. And, you know, some of them were 
genuine physical comedy, like mm-hmm. a guy in the news whose chair breaks underneath him and he's trying to pretend it hasn't happened. Like, that's funny. Um, and then some of them would like a girl who had been subject to online bullying and she was like something of like a vlogger or an online personality. She's breaking down and crying and then like her dad's come in because he's really worried. And that moment was being packaged as hilarious moment when. Yeah. And yeah. I remember kind of like, you know, we we're in halls and we we're just showing each other videos. And I think I pulled that one up and showed it to someone. They went, hang on, that's really horrible. Yeah. And it made me go, actually, that is really horrible. Yeah. And the fact that it had been packaged to me as this is funny. And I felt, oh, we're in a context where this is funny. It totally blinded me to my own moral compass. And it took someone else pointing it out to um, make me recognize the truth before my very eyes. Okay. But I mean, uh, I I agree with you, but let's not get carried away uh, by the moral compass because we know that um, the ethic of trolling um, and the enjoyment of trolling is universal and it didn't start with the internet. Um, I remember those sort of Jeremy Beadle clip shows or, you know, like you've been framed mm. um, and uh, prank phone prank shows, you know, based on um, either um, the, the, the clip show would involve somebody falling and hurting themselves really badly. And it would be hilarious. Audience would just sit there laughing their guts out. Um, or it would be um, somebody being wound up to the point where they lost entirely lost their dignity um, and were ob- obviously really suffering and furious and whatever. And the sadistic pleasure, uh, like if you've ever wound up a maid, you know, you let them think something for a minute. The the the, the sort of the, the that's that's a okay as a kind of like a, a letting off a bit of steam in uh, licensed sadism. Uh, I because, once uh, convinced my mum that Morris dancing was going to be made an Olympic sport. I mean, that's great. <laughs> um, see, see, sadism can have uh, can be creative and inventive like that. But I think the the point is that the uh, ultimately you let the person in on the joke, mm-hmm. and so what we're saying is like, yeah, we're taking the piss, but you're still one of us. You're not you're not an outcast. We don't think you're absurd. We don't think you're somebody who deserves to be treated in that way. It's just you know, it was just a bit of a wind up. And uh, that's, to me, that's totally fine. Actually, probably necessary. Uh, because otherwise, how do, how do we handle the hostility between ourselves, which is always there? Um, no matter how much we love our friends and whatever, there's always, you know, the, the other side of it as well. Um, but the question is, when you, um, prog- when you make um, sadism programmatic and universal, and when you build a culture based on the ethic of, you must be anonymous. You must be detached. You must not ever let slip anything about you that is vulnerable because otherwise you'll be trolled mercilessly. Um, and the important point is not whether you find it funny. The important point is the hilarity is of the collective. So when you talk about the humor, the, the rules of humor, it's not that you're forgetting your moral compass because Outside of that context, I mean, you, of course, if, if somebody asked you, is, is that not horrific? You would, of course, go, yeah, of course it is. But that's not why you're laughing. Um, and it's, it's, it's collectivized. So there's um, a culture of sadism that has become collectivized. And then when that becomes, uh, flows into the other, the other side of it, which is the sort of moralized side of it, well, you lose the laughter, at least overtly, and it becomes very po-faced. 
you know, there's so many people who've been milkshake ducked, you know, um, that internet idiom where somebody's loved for five minutes and then destroyed because it turns out they said something racist on Reddit or whatever. There's a, a sense there in which there's always an aspect of that which is similarly sadistic. And to give you an example, do you remember the kid Keaton Jones? No. Right. So this was a, a, a white Southern kid, a mm -hmm. Southern American kid, um, who was being bullied at school and he was crying on camera. Oh, yeah. And celebrities, um, like this went viral. Celebrities started promoting it, saying, you know, like this is terrible, no bullying. I think there were funds, fundraising mm -hmm. campaigns started, you know, for the family without the family's particular. Mm -hmm request. Um, and then what happened was that um, somebody went digging around on her, uh, his mother's um, Facebook account and found like she was standing with the Confederate flag smiling. And she'd said some pretty disobliging thing about Colin Kaepernick and his uh, sort of taking the knee um, against racism. Mm. And so the implication is that she's a typical Southern bigot. And then um, uh, fake accounts attributed to her, like included um, overtly racist mm -hmm. sentiment, uh, comments that she hadn't made. And then uh, there were rumors that were circulated that actually the reason he was bullied was because he said racist things at school. Oh, I remember hearing that rumor. Yeah. I remember hearing that rumor. Now, um, that was never verified um, as far as I know. But you got a, a lot of um, spoof accounts like Jeet and Cones, you know, mm. kind of thing, uh, which would represent uh, um, Southern white trash, you know. And the, the interesting thing to me about this, from the point of view of human evil, our ability to inflict suffering on others, et cetera, et cetera, and to withstand with equanimity other people's suffering as long mm. as they're far away. Um, is that individually, a person who likes or retweets something, or maybe even just leaves a quick comment, probably sees their responsibility as like homeopathically small. You know, you're not really doing much. It's the way our will is aggregated. It's the way we are swept up into the uh, sort of wrecking ball as it moves around. Um, so that it's not me, it's, it's us, it's the collective. As the trolling motto has, no one is as powerful as all of us. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense in which um, you become much, much worse than the school bullies, even though you're having a bit of a laugh on Twitter or you're like, you don't mean any harm, you know, like maybe you have, you feel like maybe he did say something racist and you just want to poke fun at that, but somehow collectively it becomes this awful, monstrous thing. And I mean, that I, drives people to suicide quite a lot, that I, kind of... I find the Keaton Jones instance really interesting because I think it kind of um, concretizes something which I've been thinking about for a while, which is this relationship between social media, identity politics, empathy, solidarity, visibility, and the need for care. Because something which seems to me to be increasingly argued about on social media is who is visible? Who is in undeserving of that visibility? Who should be more visible? Why are you talking about this and not this thing? Mm -hmm. And this urge yeah. to, to tear down the thing that's being spoken of. And the thing which really, for me, um, has made me ask quite a few questions about my own journey through identity politics, particularly the kind of 
you know, 2010 to 2015 era where it kind of felt like for the first time I could talk about race and have it be recognized. Yeah. And then seeing where that's ended up. Um, the thing that's made me really question all of this is the David Baddiel book, Jews Don't Count, because so much of it yeah. is about Twitter. And yeah. it's also not just about Twitter. It's also kind of about this feeling of, well, BLM's happened. Um, and everyone is talking about BLM and it's got us this huge amount of cultural visibility. People take the knee. It's being done by the English national team. Um, you know, Beyonce, Colin Kaepernick, Serena Williams are all talking about it. Um, there's a recognition of Islamophobia. Now, I wouldn't think that this is a recognition which has had a tremendous impact on policy making. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's something which had a, a tremendous impact on the kind of um, laws and surveillance technologies which target Muslims, but you know, some recognition. And then there is this David Baddiel thesis, which is these forms of visibility mean that my experience as a Jewish person has been uh, de-centered. It's been like algorithmically um, pushed down the queue and everybody is participating in this thing within progressive circles. And it seems to me that the, the Keaton Jones thing is, is almost a version of that, which is, hang on, this um, example of suffering mm -hmm. is right now in the middle of our, um, our, our imagination. You mm -hmm. know, you've just plonked it in front of my eyes and it's invited all of this attention and sympathy mm -hmm. and he's undeserving of it yeah. or someone else is more deserving of it. And yeah. it, it, it's the way in which individual totems are used to stand in for whole communities Absolutely. of experience. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, I mean, the thing is there, there are a few books that I think, um, have come along in recent years that have almost self-consciously um, made culture a lot stupider, resulted in a much worse conversation, um, tore down bonds of civility um, and mutual respect. I think one of them is um, Dawkins' book about religion um, by somebody who doesn't know about religion. Mm. Badil's book um, uh, looks like it's a version of the same thing. From everything I've seen uh, that he said um, and written, um, uh, he gives the impression of wanting to tear down the alliances that have been built painstakingly against racism in order to build alternative alliances, which lean more towards conservatism. Um, and there's a question about, therefore, about the relationship between whiteness and Jewishness, which is I'm not going to delve into, but I think that that is probably part of the background there. Um, and I think I agree with you when you say that fundamentally, as soon as you get into the place where you're saying, why are they getting this attention? You know, um, rather than trying to use that and to find a productive way to broaden out the conversation, they don't deserve it. Uh, their pain is not worthy. Um, I remember there was a similar case where uh, a, a white guy in America was shot by the cops. And actually, that's not uncommon. Mm. Poor white people in America are shot by the cops quite a lot. Um, and numerically, in absolute terms, more so than uh, it's like poor black people, but still um, disproportionately it's black people, obviously. Um, but the point is that there were some responses which were like, I don't give a shit about this. I don't care about this because, you know, there's no reason for that. They did something stupid. They got themselves shot, whatever. Whatever the argument was, their attention on them is undeserving. Rather than saying, this tells us something really important about how mm. the state and how violence works. And it's the same thing. If you, As soon as you say any 
other minority would be blah de blah. You are in a position of um, uh, uh, sort of, it's not even Manichaeanism. Mm. Uh, would that it were, um, because Manichaeanism uh, means good versus evil, right? For- or you know so- something along those lines. But um, it's a kind of um, dog eat dog scenario. It's a kind of zero sum mm. scenario. Anybody else who's getting attention is taking it away from me. And I remember Badil once uh, complained um, on Twitter. I mean, he's one of the people. I'm probably one of them too. Uh, who would probably has has not done himself any favors by being on Twitter. It doesn't uh, sort of con- uh, enhance his uh, thinking or mine. But um, uh, one of the things he said was, there's an idea now that uh, the slave trade is a Holocaust and uh, the attention given to it is tacitly anti-Semitic because it desacralizes or desingularizes the, the Nazi Holocaust. I think there was also something about um, talking about Winston Churchill's role in the Bengal famine yeah. was a form of subsumed anti-Semitism because it then um, focused too much on the suffering of the millions of Bengalis who starved to death and didn't uh, celebrate or or tarnished the victory over Nazism. Yeah, which is, uh, it's it's not, uh, look, I can understand a point of view which says that the Nazi Holocaust is a singular thing. I can engage with that. So it's not that. It's that you are making the conversation a hundred times worse than it needs to be and making it uh, so stupid um, that you make people angry and you make people say stupid things. And I think that the resulting conversations around this on the internet have been terrible. But I mean, to to maybe steer the conversation a bit away from David Badil and maybe more onto the kinds of Twitter users who maybe aren't anonymous, um, but don't have huge follower counts. They maybe don't have, you know, freelance jobs in journalism. They're just kind of, you know, posting and they've fashioned a community for themselves um, of of posters. Did you hear about the Jorts the Cat controversy recently? Uh, no. Okay. Do you know who Jorts the Cat is? I've heard of the name. No. So Jorts the Cat somehow, I don't really know, has become... Um, an account which is the most followed source for American labor struggles, organized labor struggles. I don't really know how it happened. Just one day there was a ginger cat who was um, posting really great stuff about, you know, Starbucks, Starbucks workers unionizing and walking out and, you know, Amazon unionization efforts. So I've got no idea who the person is behind it. The kind of um, front is a ginger cat called Jorts. There's also a tortoiseshell cat called Jean. Anyway, it all starts because um, a woman on the internet has posted about her experience of using Instacart, which I guess is you use an app and somebody does your shopping for you and brings it to you, I think, maybe. Okay. And uh, she was like, you know, this Instacart shopper keeps telling me that things are out of stock and I know damn well that they're not. So she drove down to the supermarket and apparently saw the person standing around not getting the items that she wanted. And she was like, kind of, aha, victory. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've caught them in the act. And then yeah. the jorts, the cat, responded with, well, here's an idea. Why don't you do your own damn shopping? And that was the catalyst for a discussion about whether jorts, the cat, was ableist because a service like Instacart could be really useful for people with physical disabilities, um, people with mobility issues. 
this woman who was the original person who posted, there's no indication that she has a disability. Um, she's just extra. But this whole um, kind of uh, nebula of conversations and conversations about the conversations have been kicked off to the point that there are still people being like, well, I used to like George the Cat for all the union updates, but... Um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly now because of George's ableism. There's almost also been a kind of um, uh, now almost a, a, a subcultural trend. And I think it's important to talk about a subcultural rather than actual meaningful, here's the disabled community and here's organized labor over here. It doesn't work like that. But there is a kind of little um, micro trend of saying, well, you know, trade unions aren't sufficiently um, disability inclusive or, or, or picket lines are, are ableist and so on and so forth. So much of this has been catalyzed by this one Twitter interaction between George the Cat and the Instacart lady. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is, um, first of all, I mean, yes, we probably do have a slightly moralistic uh, way of dealing with uh, services like this, delivery services, like who the hell hasn't ordered Deliveroo? Okay. Mm. So you don't always go and get your own shopping. You don't always go, go and get your own food. And actually, it's not such a bad thing if someone's getting paid for that, as long as they're getting paid you know, a decent living wage. That's not the worst thing it could be. Um, same deal if um, there's a family that needs um, uh, somebody to come and clean the house. Okay, that means somebody's getting paid for it. So it's not unpaid domestic labor. So there's worse ways of approaching this. So I'd say that from a starting point, we've already sort of framed it as a moral failure. Obviously, she sounds like a bit of what we'd call a Karen. Um, mm. But the, to be frank, I'm also a bit of a Karen. If I'm sitting there waiting for my shopping that I've ordered on like uh, one of these apps, and I sort of get the idea that the person who's supposed to be doing it is taking the piss and is sitting there, and I turn up and find him sitting. I mean, I wouldn't do this. Mm. I, I, you know, like I, I wouldn't have the motivation <laughs> to go up there. I would just decide to make some toast or something. Um, but if I if I got that angry, you know, I can imagine getting that angry and just feeling like, well, why are you treating me like this? Why? Like, do I deserve that? Like, you you wouldn't do that to anybody else. Um, so I can understand that kind of thing. And also, I think it's wrong because obviously you're targeting somebody who's basically underpaid and overworked. And, you know, like to, to even make a reasonable amount of money, you have to shuffle back and forth really quickly. Um, and quite often, they're not properly trained. Quite often, the uh, uh, apps don't work. They give them the wrong address, et cetera, et cetera, all of that sort of stuff. Okay. But that's an argument for a kind of class solidarity um, that uh, requires, you know, like uh, something practical and built rather than, you know, like a lecture. You're going to change your mind because you get the right sermon. So there's that. And then, of course, there's the whole arguments about ableism and how it spirals because actually we're in a situation where there's a lot that is morally and politically unclear. And I think this is um, notable about COVID, for example. Mm. Um, if if, if the response to COVID was absolutely politically and morally clear, we would not be having these horrifying fights about mm. it as we have been sometimes uh, between the lockdown skeptics who often sound, you know, tendentiously um, invested in their position. Uh, and also the, the, the guys who say that to be a lockdown skeptic is inherently ableist who are invested in another kind of position. Um, if there weren't trade-offs, uh, in, in any option that you take with regard to COVID-19. Um, if there wasn't a tragedy built into the situation, and if 
you know, we had known exactly what to do from the beginning, as if this wasn't like, you know, a really novel situation, you know, then we wouldn't be having these arguments. And I would say that when it comes to things like, um, you know, is she ableism and so on, I think that's a thought worth entertaining in your own head. I do wonder about the impulse to like thrash it out on Twitter. Um, because obviously we know what what's going to happen there. Um, there's not going to be a productive agreement. It's not the kind of format where you can have that, where you can not even agreement, productive disagreement. It doesn't handle contraries very well. But also, you're going to be exhausted. Mm. Going to be psychically and emotionally exhausted. It's going to take up a lot of your day, and you're going to feel angry and tired. Um, and uh, you know. Um, uh, then you'll, you you could be doing so much else. One of the things I'm interested in is this huge contrast in scale that there seems to be this um, kind of micro event, a thing where nothing has really happened. Yes. Um, because if I have to tell the story of this all began with a lady's Instacart shopping experience. Mm -hmm. And there also isn't necessarily a sense of people going, and I too have been the victim of the Instacart bandit. It's just like this one thing that happens to this one mm -hmm. lady, this one tweet being sent by this one account. And then now the relationship between uh, you know, disability rights activists and the organized labor movement and the role of disabled people within the organized labor movement is now being contested on the back of this Instacart shopper, mm -hmm. which to me is something um, exhausting about Twitter, but it's also hilarious when you take a tiny step back and you go, what the fuck has happened to our horizons? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting that um, there's a function here. Partly it's to do with the way celebrities um stand in for um, issues that we can't resolve. Mm. Um, like um, I uh, made a conscious decision not to have a, have a say on Twitter or any other venue until I was ready to write something about it if I wanted to, about Depp Heard. Right, and there's a reason for that uh, because I I know um, you know I I, have, I watched the trial I watched the whole thing so I know what happened, um, and I'm pretty sure that I can make a, a reasonably interesting case out of it if I wanted to, um, but then I thought like it's not my story and um, my opining is pretty easy you know I can have some easy opining. Or I can try and say something that maybe is a bit contrary um, and that uh, maybe others on the left will find problematic, as it were, or maybe something that's not problematic, but just um, isn't, doesn't sit well in a Twitter uh, sort of venue. And so, but the point is that if I were to opine in that way on a subject that is easy to opine about, um, because Johnny Depp uh, beat his uh, spouse and uh, allegedly uh, his spouse beat him and there was all sorts of things going on. But basically, without implying any parity between the two, by the way, um, uh, but this was obviously a toxic relationship and so on. So I could have a, an opinion about this toxic relationship and uh, then opinions about the kind of figure that Johnny Depp is and you know what he represents and the reactionary campaign that was mobilized in support of him and so on. Um, and the misogynistic backlash against me too. And you know, like take time to patiently unfold all of that. I just couldn't do it on Twitter. 
Mm. Right. But also, um, what am I actually trying to say in that? Because I think it reminds me of when um, there was an American academic whose name eludes me, who was accused of um, abusing a male student. And uh, a number of people like Judith Butler, Slavoj Žižek, and various others signed a letter saying, oh, no, no, this is outrageous, this is terrible, you know, this is Me Too culture gone too far. Mm. Um, I think that they were wrong about that. I think there was the, the evidence of, suggests like there was some serious abuse. But I think there, there's a kind of like, I think there's some people who are like desperate to sort of sign a letter that says, no, no, you're going too far. Mm. Like stop this here because this is like so. There's obviously some sort of tacit dissent from what people understand Me Too to be, mm. um, and I think that that would be the same thing here. So I would be sort of um, using this to work out well, how much am I just being misogynistic here? How much of this is just my unconscious sort of uh, misogyny? How much of this is um, actually? you know, the result of uh, my personal biographical mm. history, child abuse and whatever else. How much of this uh, is uh, actually uh, working out issues I've had with various partners, you know? Uh, how, you know, like, and why would I be using this issue to, to work out all my stuff in public? To some extent, that's what writing is, mm. like in a very coded way. But that's what we do. We try and process, and, that, and you, you can already see before you even get to the politics of it, that's quite a volatile, toxic, emotional situation to be involved in. Because um, if the characters involved don't conform to the moral sort of um, uh, drama that, that you want to set up in your head and you know to explain things, uh, well, then you're going to have to edit, you're going to have to, you know, etc. So you're going to want your celebrities to be to be exemplary, to be paradigms, to be moral paragons for your side or against your side. And like this sort of intrigued me about, because when I was on Twitter, uh, Facebook rather, uh, around the time of that trial, I was being relentlessly bombarded mm. with right-wing propaganda, which was taking clips of Johnny, either on his um, show, Pirates of the Caribbean, and like, remember Johnny Depp, mm. Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah, I remember. It was okay. But like, um, but like, we were supposed to forget that he's accused of like physically assaulting his wife um, and various other things. I mean, it's sort of saying like, wouldn't you rather hold on to the fantasy that you had of this guy? Like he played this character, you found it charismatic, you might have even found it kind of erotic, you admired him or you wanted to bang him. Remember that. So this can't be. This can't be true because what you know. It's not just what's at stake is this man. Did he did it, do it or not? Yeah. It's like your erotic investment. Well, also, in this person. Yeah, there's there's that hundred um, percent. But there's also um, he. Um, uh, you know, by all accounts, in court, came across as extremely likable. He was extremely good at you know charming the jury and the court. Um, Amber Heard less so. Um, and that's like a pretty arbitrary thing up, upon which uh, a verdict should be based. But I think that was a large part of what mm. actually happened. Uh, she just appeared to be less sympathetic. And the, the uh, Johnny Depp's prosecutor, um, because remember, she was on trial, not mm. him, um, made mincemeat of her for um, various bad things that she's done. But everything bad that he'd done has been sort of tacitly mm. forgiven and understood. Very interesting, that. Um, but... Um, the, the 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 modus operandi was on the one hand sentimentalizing Johnny Depp, like completely smoothing the edges, making uh, getting rid of anything that could make him a more morally complex character and a more 
frankly broken and, and uh, sort of disturbed character in some ways, um, but not a monster mm. is the crucial thing. Um, but also monstering Amber Heard. Mm. So they made Johnny Depp into your childhood hero, who's also somebody you want to bang. Um, and, you know, like he was there for us. We've got to be there for him. There was a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, uh, sort of Peter Pan sort of ideology, mm. right? Um, and this wasn't actually, I mean, it was bombarded me. I assumed it was because, you know, like I'm at the age where the reactionary brain worms start setting in. I'm a sort of 45 year old man. This is when I should start turning to the right. Um, actually, it turns out like this was not gendered. It was not aged. Mm. This was like, this was a general thing. It was a very popular moment. Um, and it's interesting how popular energies um, canalize this backlash against me too around this particular drama. And of course, on the other side of that, Amber Heard is completely demonized. You're shown clips of her and the framing is the setup. Like the clip doesn't tell you anything. The clip is her crying or maybe not crying or, um, you know, saying something and then maybe getting tripped up or whatever. Mm. But basically the clip is not very much information. The framing is lol, Amber mm. uh, reveals herself, et cetera, et cetera. Tells another one, Amber, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I really want to. I really want to think about this. This point that you've just made about the framing of images yeah. and videos, and what what that in then invites for us. But just to kind of maybe quickly loop back to the question of writing. Yeah. Has Twitter changed how you write? Um, it it must have done. Um, but what I would say is that. If the issue is uh, that, you know, Twitter forces us into a kind of um, a series of schizoid jittery intervals where we are notified and updated and we're checking for updates and, you know, we'll be sad if we don't get enough updates, you know, not enough people liking our stuff. Um, uh, which might be why I'm so melancholic all the time. <laughs> I don't get enough attention. But um, there's... You just need to go on all reaction vids and then um, you kind of embed some of those videos and anything will bang. Oh really? I hadn't. Um, I hadn't th okay. It's just a just a little trick. Okay, interesting. Um, so you're going to be using all the Real Housewives memes now, like that feeling when Lacan says. That feeling when Lacan says, "Fuck, I, I don't know these memes. I don't want to know these memes. I'm alienated and offended by them. A bit like fashion. I don't understand." Do you not fashion. like memes? Um, some of them actually are pretty funny, but I think um, they're becoming a bit. Um, they're becoming a bit dated. As far as I know, millennials and Generation Z are turning against them. Well, okay, the the um, simple image memes, yes, but and the gifs, reaction videos, yeah, no, no, gifs are gifs are long gone. Yeah. But um, okay, have you ever seen that episode of Star Trek, Darmok? No. <gasps> oh my god. Okay, so it's an episode of Star Trek where Captain Picard is stranded on a planet with an alien. And the universal translator doesn't work because they've got a completely different understanding of language. So this alien communicates through references to cultural artifacts within their own culture. So it will be like timber when the walls fell. And that kind of means like, oh, this failure has happened. Um, and so in order to communicate with this alien, he has to then learn what the stories are and then learn what the references are. And this is before... Twitter, before Instagram, before Facebook, before anything. And it kind of anticipates communication through meme. So if I were to be at home and 
trying to say that, you know, oh, you know, you're accusing me of something that you've done. I'll be like, oh, it's a bit Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, like to my partner, because that will reference a meme and he'll know exactly what I mean by that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's, a, it's um, I don't do it myself, but um, it's like smileys and all the rest of it, which I'm also irrationally averse They're to. They're called emojis. Yeah, emojis, <laughs> right. Um, no, I do know this. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I'm, I'm irrationally averse to them, um, but they do a job. They're very efficient. Um, and, and sometimes they it, it like enable certain types of joke that couldn't be made without them. Mm. Um, so, but I get tired of them because, um, especially, um, being on Twitter as much as I am, I get to see a lot of the stuff about, uh, oh, uh, Sir Keir Starmer or whatever. Mm. And like the same jokes being made over and over again. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense in which the meme help, it sort of allows you to do a shortcut and allows you to try and make surprising, amusing, humorous connections. Um, but also there's a kind of in-group conformity going on. Um, and there's a sense in which it's also a, a sort of stopgap for thinking, right? And that's where it becomes problematic as it can. It can be a stopgap for thinking. So um, we end up uh, taking issues um, and treating them as moral tests um, and um, using celebrities or these little incidents that you mentioned, you know, like uh, George the Cat and the the, the Instacart lady. Um, I mean, I know exactly what you mean because I see instances of that kind of thing all the time. Um, I think that's not new. I think that newspapers have always used anecdote to um, uh, warm up a particular story they're telling. Um, and in fact, that's um, something we should be wary about because it's a traditional communications practice, particularly of the right, of the racist right. Like Powell's whole technique was based upon the anecdote. Oh yeah. He was like, I was in my constituency and yeah. I st talked to a guy about the weather. And then suddenly he said, in 15, 20 years time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white. And I was like, this man yeah, in the, your constituency, he said this. This man in his constituency. Um, and, and like the, you know, I mean, in terms of um, racist scatology, um, he mentioned um, a lady having excrement pushed through a door um, by uh, black neighbors, etc. Um, actually, we've heard the same thing from Jack Straw talking about gypsies mm. um, and travelers back in the late 90s. Uh, I remember similar things being said about um, Muslims and migrants um, by Tory politicians in the mid 2010s. Um, there's a long history of the, the anecdote working to organize um, disgust. Um, and, you know, it's supposedly informative, um, but that's not really what it's about. It's about um, sort of or organizing emotion in a particular way. Um, and so that happens a lot on the internet. And it's, 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 whereas it would have been centralized and part of a kind of sovereign political violence um, in, in, in the back in the day, you know, think about McCarthyism, think mm -hmm. about show trials. Now it's disseminated, it's micro, it's capillarized. And so um, there's, I would say always the danger, as soon as you start off with uh, the, the anecdote that is supposed to reveal everything, that first of all, you reduce life to an experiential cliche, right? Um, so, you know, you end up saying, I stand with Johnny Depp, I stand with mm. Amber Heard. Um, and 
I think if you're really thinking, I mean, I understand there's a need for a political intervention sometimes, but if you're really thinking, you don't stand with them. That's not what you're doing. You're mm. intervening uh, in, a, in a debate about uh, how to, uh, the overwhelming fact of male violence towards women, the reality of that, and how to stop it. Um, and also, of course, you know, violence in general. It's, it's not untrue that Amber Heard struck him mm. a number of times. And, you know, that's a conversation that we should be able to have too. But the point is, you're not going to uh, advance that conversation or even advance a productive political intervention by having a hashtag around it that reduces it to a, a moral stereotype. I mean, Elon Musk has bought Twitter. Yeah. And this man cannot stop posting. I mean, I would like to think that if I was a billionaire, I would be not on Twitter. I'd be in my cryo chamber, like with the finest cocaine money can buy, like just watching like NBA dunk contest repeats. Like that's what I would be doing. But this man cannot stop posting. And he's somebody who, who craves the acceptance perhaps of like, trolls and wants to be seen as being aligned with part of their culture. Um, what is all that about? Like, is, is, is he someone who is as addicted to the rest of us to Twitter or is this just a billionaire buying up a bit of communications infrastructure? Oh, I think it is hundred uh, percent. He's addicted. Um, I think it's, it's got some other dimensions to it for sure. Uh, I think that there's um, a political dimension to it. And as much as I understand that he, has tended increasingly to gel with Peter Thiel and various right-wing libertarian billionaires who regard Twitter as kind of leftist or far-left biased or whatever. Um, it's a kind of uh, Trump idiocy. Um, so there's an element of that. I wonder if there's also um, a long-term project for profitability, which has to do with um, reinventing payments and things like that. Um, uh, the fact is that his investors don't seem anywhere near as worried as they should be given the rate at which advertising accounts are being lost and given the real, very real chance that the system will just hemorrhage users at a certain point. You know, there, it, it's a question of what's the critical mass and we don't know what that is. Um, a, lot, a number of people are already preparing their exits. Um, so there's a, a number of things going on there that we don't understand. But what I was really struck by was just today, I saw another example of uh, a capitalist paying lavish tribute to Elon Musk. Um, and you see this frequently. Mm. This was the boss of Netflix, I think, saying that Elon Musk is, is actually a real hero. Um, he's done this to save democracy. Um, and uh, he's one of the few really creative uh, people around. And as far as I know, this guy doesn't have any stake in Twitter. Um, but I think the American ruling class, um, when they start talking about their billionaire friends, they're really talking about how they see themselves. Mm. They have a very sentimentalized view of themselves as the really creative people who are lifting up humanity. Um, and you know, like you, you would get this when um, Elon Musk was talking about uh, SpaceX. I think it is. Mm. Is that is that his one? The the one that's going to go to the moon or Mars or Mars. whatever. Um, and I remember he was um, having a conversation with Sam Harris or some other numbskull, um, and he basically, his response was, humanity rocks. And what he meant by that was, I rock. Mm. Like, people like me rock. You know, he doesn't really think much of 90% of humanity. That's a 
glaringly apparent. Um, but in terms of the addiction, I'm really curious about what um, what we think addiction is, um, mm. because historically the model for addiction was chemical addiction, right? You're a chemical slave because you've injected this substance into your veins. It's now robbed you of agency. It's now you can't get through the day without putting more of this stuff into your veins or drinking or whatever it happens to be. Uh, that's a secularized version of the story of spiritual demon demonic possession um, from the 19th century, um, but. For the last three or four decades, the, there's been a growing emphasis on the fact that a lot of addictive behavior doesn't conform to this pattern. It's dependent behavior. Right. Gamblers Anonymous, Bloggers Anonymous, you know, there's uh, Shopping Anonymous. And these are not like, they sound like jokes in a way, but they're not. Um, like people become genuinely hooked on doing these things. And the only question is, we're not sure entirely what that means because the social industry has its own theory of how addiction works. And that theory, though probably wrong, works to an extent. It it it, it works as a sort of technical explanation that they can use. Um, but I think it is derived post hoc. So basically the theory is this. You see uh, the bright red notifications um, and you feel a little surge of dopamine. It gives you a sense of pleasure and well-being briefly. Um, it's an approval cookie. Um, and this so, is the social network theory of how it works. It's right, like, absolutely. You know, you're like a rat in a lab, and it's you know doling out little bits of yeah. cocaine to you. But that's the theory of Silicon Valley, um, and that's the theory they alighted upon after they invented the like button, uh, which I can't remember which app actually in, in introduced it originally, but it was one that Facebook then bought. And then Facebook desi designed its own like button, and then user engagement exploded. And so then, subsequently, you get these post hoc theories of uh, dopamine boost, you know, and we're not evolved to cope with that. And so our brains go haywire and so on, all this sort of stuff. And there's quite a lot of literature about gambling addiction and machine gambling that is based upon similar evolutionary biological tropes. And I'm not saying that that's totally irrelevant. Um, I think it's a bit like falling in love. Um, in more ways than one, as we'll see, um, in that, yeah, falling in love is a chemical process. And, you know, there's a, there's a cliche, well, it's just the same as eating a lot of bars of chocolate. Well, maybe, right? But what's important about the process is the meaning that's involved. You wouldn't reduce that in your own life uh, because you're not an idiot to some chemical transaction. And you can't. Um, like eating chocolate hasn't formed my sense of self falling in love has and 100%. Twitter has, if I'm honest. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's why I think we have to come back to the relationship between addiction and love. I think that fundamentally, first of all, just to say about dopamine, as far as I know, sort of neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky would say that um, when you, it, it, dopamine doesn't really like give you a boost of pleasure. It actually has to do with desire and wanting. It makes you hanker more. Um, and that's actually a, a, an interesting idea that addiction is something that is done with wanting by those who are done with wanting. Um, well, I would say that, uh, you know, for, in the etymological sense, but also in the psychoanalytic sense, addiction is about devotion. It's, you could say, a kind of misplaced devotion. 
um, when the relationships in your life are kind of disappointing, people are disappointing. Um, Sherry Turkle would say, well, this is why people are turning to robots for sex, for romance, etc. Mm. This is becoming a real world phenomenon at a very fast rate. And, you know, uh, to some extent, I can understand this. You know, um, the, the, there's women who um, have been interviewed for these documentaries who say, well, basically, he's always there. Um, he's, you know, men come with all sorts of disappointments. And I, I get that. I've met them. Yeah. Like intrinsically, men are disappointing. I think that's sort of structural. Um, but the point is that um, the the robot will never let you down. It's like in the same way that a robot can work twenty four seven in you know in the dark with no bathroom bricks or anything like that. It can work in the mines and whatever else. Um, a robot can you know. The robot can do the emotional labor because it's actually cost-free for the robot. It doesn't m matter, you know. So um, there's a sense in which um, uh, there uh, there is that possibility as a technical prop for a problematic relationship with other people. And there's an argument um, by some addiction specialists. I mentioned Rick Luce, um, who's an Irish sort of psychoanalyst um, who specializes in addiction. And he basically argues that um, addiction is addiction. It is uh, something that comes in place for speaking, basically meaning you know language is, is about your relationship with mm. other people, the other. Um, and addiction is comes when basically you root around relations with the other um, instead of getting your enjoyment through social interaction, you know, which means hanging out, sex, all the rest of it. You stuff something into your veins, uh, or you drink something, or you smoke something, or whatever. Gamble. It can be the same thing. Um, and you have dodged the other, you know, um, and you can satisfy yourself. So there's a kind of autistic mode of enjoyment, autistic in the narrow sense, like um, sort of uh, auto enjoyment. Okay, so there is that. Um, so that's a way of being devoted to something. Well, Tara, on this on this theme of misplaced devotion, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you to read read something out, mm -hmm. and uh, I've cropped out all the identifying details, uh -huh. um, and it's kind of weird. So sorry, but this is a message I received this morning in my Instagram DMs. I'm going to ask you to read it out for the viewers at home. Hi, Ash. I hope you're doing well. I don't suppose you would consider selling feet pics slash vids. If so, I will pay right away and would buy as many as you'd like to sell. I genuinely have the biggest foot fetish for your feet. I just think they look incredible in general and would do anything to see more of your feet, especially your soles and different kind of feet pics videos. If you ever considered it, many thanks. He also um, has attached photos of my feet that he's gleaned from holiday photos and stuff like that, just as an example of, of, I guess, my own feet, in case I didn't recognize them or know what he meant. And, and the reason why I'm showing you this is because, one, I think that there is something here which is speaking to these themes about what kind of connection with the other or avoidance of the other is this kind of behavior. And two, something I've been increasingly thinking is that particularly if you're a woman on the internet and your face or parts of your body mm -hmm. are on display. And mm -hmm. it can be something as, in my view, innocuous as I'm on holiday or I'm wearing sandals because it's the summer so mm -hmm. you can see my toes, that your image is in proximity to pornography and is being interpreted through the lens of pornography, whether you like it or not, whether or not that's your job, 
Um, because at first when I got these messages, I was really like, um, I guess a little bit grossed out because mm -hmm. when you are being made an object and you don't want to, that's not a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards I was thinking, well, well, hang on. Like, I think that this is rude. Um, yeah. but has the internet done something to this guy's brain, which makes him kind of think, well, anyone who's a woman with a public profile is a kind of sex worker. Yeah, I think there's um, there's something to that, but I think I would approach it from the other direction. Um, so if the logic is that we are all producing a, a personal icon, an image of ourselves, um, we're constantly leaking our own details. We're leaking photos of ourselves, you know. There's more details about my life. We're constantly leaking it, but it's part of the process. It's an industrial process. And what we hopefully get is some approbation from our peers say, oh, that, that's a really good photo. Well done. Um, or something less patronizing, you mm. know what I mean? But um, That's a really good photo. Great composition. Yeah, yeah. Amazing composition there. <laughs> what about my balls? Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you have to delete that. Um, no, no, no. That is going to be the clip that we put right at the beginning of the show. What about my boss? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. All right. Um, let's let's try and be serious, please. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the real question here is, what about my feet? Like, you know, yeah, exactly. The, the, the feet guys are, are on one here. All right. So um, I think that um, there is, uh, if you if you follow, like, uh, there's a bunch of left-wing sex workers that I follow, right? And uh, there are various types of people, various types of temperament, and they, you know, that some of them post like uh, content about the, their bodies, and some don't, right? The ones who do, I would say, are doing something much the same as those who would post a non-nude picture, um, and much the same as the sort of thing I was doing when I was engaged in a selfie spiral for about two years, uh, when I just couldn't get over, you know, the fact that people were liking pictures of me. Mm. Uh, I just loved that. I lapped it up. Um, and so I sort of, I, un I, I understand that urge as being an extension of, I mean, sex work is obviously um, not the same thing as posting an image of mm. yourself. But I would say that um, it would make sense if you're like, one minute you're doing the influencer thing, like, hi, I'm in a beach, you know, kind mm. of thing. Um, and uh, I look great. And don't you wish you were living my life kind of thing, tacitly. Um, and then saying, you know what, guys are obviously into this. Um, maybe I'll make some money out of it, you know? Um, and to monetize your sexuality, well, there are ways of doing that that don't involve actual sex or simulated sex or nudity or anything like that. But I can understand that for some, like for some people, well, it's not that much of a difference. You know, the boundaries, I mean, everybody's boundaries are, are different, obviously. So I think that there's a sense in which um, it's not that it's not that we're all sex workers in some sort of wishy-washy way, but rather that um, when you say there's the logic of pornography, to some extent, experience is being pornographized. Um, Marcus Gilroy Ware's book about social media, which I like mention a lot in the book because it's really good, has some really good formulations in it. And one of the points he makes is that, I mean, what the social industry um, exists to do 
um, is to give you moods, ways of managing your emotions. That's quite a lot of what's going on. And it does that by tapping into legitimate human desires. So food porn, outrage porn, porn, you know, like it's all being pornographized. Um, and I think that's just part of the idiom. Um, and then when you think about what it's like when you do take a Twitter or Instagram selfie, um, my recollection, and I think this it reflects the experience of other people I know, um, particularly women on Instagram, and I think the, sur the survey evidence bears this out, is that yes, there's the pleasure of, you know, you get a bunch of likes, you get some validation, right? But what you're getting validation for um, turns out to be not you. Um, it turns out to be a what I would describe as a techno-social precipitate of the machine. In other words, you're giving it some raw material, but you're you're adhering to certain protocols um, for the material that you're putting in. Actually, these selfies turn out to be extremely repetitive mm. because there's certain things you have to do. Like there's the angle. All right, maybe do, people don't do that angle anymore. I think that was the sort of um, that was like the 2015. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like hey, you know, like and that basically narrows your chin and you know, mm. like uh, does, you know, reduces the appearance of mass. Um, okay. There's the sort of um, baby boomer thing which is more like <laughs> oh yeah yeah the the mum on facetime yeah yeah pose. exactly um or, or whatever so there's different things but basically they end up looking the same so there was a a period of time um uh when every woman on instagram was doing this oh yeah Right. Um, and like, this is not, I'm not, it's not a slight. I, I understand, you know, these are fads, trends, et cetera. Men have similar things for different kinds of things, but. Men do that too. I'm sorry. I refuse I to accept that it's just women going like, I, like I, I've I, taken photos of my partner where he goes from like a, a perfectly natural face and then like. Do you know what? I, I would never do that thing, but I think what I would do is like really suck in the belly oh, and yeah. like, sort of like, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. suddenly your, your arms come out like um, you're like on a football away day. Yeah, I, I get like the rock, you know, yeah, like yeah, I, yeah. I, my muscles are so big that I can't even put my arms down yeah, by my can, side. Yeah, possibly. There's, so there's an element of that. But okay, but so, you know, the, the point is that I'm just describing that um, there was this trend. And the point is that there were a lot of books and videos and articles telling you, this is how you take a selfie. And this is how you take the best selfie that will get most likes. And the best thing to do on, and the advice was always the same, the best thing to do is repeat what gets the most engagement, what people really like. And so you ended up producing a personal icon that was heavily filtered, that was, you know, like you, you've got to take it from the right angle. Um, and it's interesting the way the filter works. It used to be Instagram filters were heavily nostalgic, mm. you know, like, oh, this photo was taken in the past. Boy, you must be very old. Um, and now it's like you're a kind of mythical creature because everything is smoothed out. All the flaws are yeah. taken away. You, you've got little glitter coming out, you know, or whatever. Mm. I mean, there's lots of different things you can do. Um, they will even put makeup on you if you have decided I'm not bothering with that today. They'll put it on you for you. Like TikTok has loads mm. of these th things as well. Some of them are actually pretty good. Like some of them made me look kind of hot, like I want to do myself. But um, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and, and ordinarily that's not an apprehension I have. Um, but um, th so these filters are becoming very sophisticated, but the point is they make it look like you're already dead. I think there's- um, the Oh, writer. that's such a plot twist I wasn't expecting coming. All right, hit me. 
Well, this is, uh, I think it's Brooke Wendt um, uh, who wrote this. Um, and I, I think it was such a, a sort of fecund line of analysis. But the idea is that essentially um, the the image is not that of a, a, a living person. The image is, is, is that of, of posterity. Mm. The image is, uh, and it's essentially the image you, you have uh, of um, somebody from whom the life process has already been driven, you know, like a stuffed image or something like mm. that. From a certain point of view, there's the idea we all have that when we take a selfie, what we're really doing is putting ourselves at the center of it. There's the, and there's also this kind of morally browbeating idea of narcissism. Young people are so narcissistic and fake these days, you know. Um, says Rod Little in his column. Says <laughs> Rod Little. In, Rod Little. Oh my God. Um, do you know what? Can you not remind me of people I was forgetting? I mean. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 Rod Little is such a two thousands and late person. Oh, um, he's still he's still kicking around. But I mean, on on the the um, deadness of the selfie, it made me think that um, I was on holiday with a bunch of friends and we were just like pissing about on the beach, running around. And I was like, oh, we should do the dead wife pose. And they're like, what's, what's the dead wife pose? And I was like, oh, it's when you are looking back over your shoulder and you're running and laughing playfully. Because in a movie, when the yeah. wife has died, yeah. that's the one that the guy is looking at. Yeah. And I was like, dead wife pose. That's 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 the, Or the, the other one is like, um, you know, he's yeah. like that. And she she's sort of, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, 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 the sort of living your best life pose. Mm. You're actually dying your best death. Um, the point is that um, the ethos of the internet, and particularly Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., is that um, you always have to be having abundant ecstatic fun. Um, and if any part of you is not doing that, then employers will see it. Employers, potential employers, will see uh, what you've put on the internet, um, and if it looks like you're a kind of a person with contraries and mm. difficulties, and like maybe um, like they might think that you're not going to fit in here because capitalism is obsessed with the ideology of smoothness and flow, uh, which is basically a frictionalist integration of you. Um, into the flow of capitalism and the flows of value, but the problem is fundamentally. We were talking about addiction and the idea of being hooked on dopamine, etc. If you look at that literature, um, Nir Ayol has wrote the book uh, Hooked, uh, which is an explanation to capitals how to get your consumers hooked. And the, the core contention is there's no such thing as the self. Right? We talk about the self all the time. The self is just a collection of habits. Um, and uh, which, if you are a clever capitalist, you'll know how to create habits. In other words, the self is just um, a smudge. Uh, a, behaviorist-induced sort of effect. Um, it's a subject effect of certain structures. And if you think about um, if you think about it in that in those terms, the self that is created, the icon um, that we put on the internet, which we uh, devote our lives to and which gets larger and larger than ourselves, um, you know, to the point where it's absorbing all the love and attention that we wanted for ourselves, uh, our, our poor flawed selves who would never be as, uh, as good or as good looking or as glamorous or as enjoying life as this particular goddess or god or whatever, um, they've taken all, all, our, all, all, all that for us. Um, and one of the things that happens to celebrities um, is that they go on these benders, they 
they have meltdowns publicly, um, uh, they commit suicide, self-harm, whatever, partly in reaction to the icon that has taken over their lives. I am not that person. I don't know who you think I am, but that is not me. Britney that, Spears with yeah. the head shaving, most yeah. famously in 2007. That's, but like, this is, I, I refer to Kenneth Anger's book about Hollywood stars and their meltdowns. And like, this is just, this is this, first of all, we want the icon, but we also want to like the prurient sadism of seeing beneath the icon, mm. seeing the makeup meltdown. We want the sort of the gossip of like uh, tantrums and all the rest of it. We love this stuff. Um, and so um, if you think about the uh, what we're doing on the internet when we're purveying this icon of ourselves, that is, as I say, it's a it's a it's a subject effect that's produced by various technologies. This self is smudged out over um, uh, networks of you know and uh, mobile relay devices, underground cables, etc., um, and you end up producing this icon. One effect of this is to make people terribly suicidal, self-harming, etc., um, to make them terribly depressed about themselves and how they look and how they feel about themselves. Um, and so. When it comes to identity politics, I would say for us, the question is how to have a an anti-identity politics, how to have a, a form of politics that reduces the amount of labor you have to spend curating yourself because uh, uh, you live in a society that has defined you in a particular way, or because you live in a system that forces you to belabor the self. So should we all just log off? Final question. Um, I think that's um, a, a sort of utopianism in the bad sense, right? Uh, we can't just wish away these structures. Like it's to me, it's similar to the argument about, well, can we abolish the police? Well, maybe like in the long run, if we radically change society, but we can't just wish it away, right? And it's the same with this. There are certain advantages that you get from participating. Um, and the question then for me is, first of all, we can ha have the utopian question, what else could we be doing with writing if not this? If we're writing ourselves into a new nation, what kind of nation would we like to have? How could we do it differently? Um, and everything depends, therefore, on what we are capable of desiring collectively and realizing that in some sort of organized political form. So uh, that's one part of it. But also, if you have to use these devices, and like, I'm a petty bourgeois scribe, Okay, I want to make a living. Um, if I want to share my materials, I have to use these devices, mm. these mechanisms. Um, otherwise, I'm going to go broke. So if we're going to use these, how are we going to use them? Are we going to be users in the sense that cocaine addicts are users? Or are we going to use the system in a professionalized way, I would say, in a way that basically... Um, you know, uh, you are not allowing the system to milk your emotional vulnerabilities or your contradictory thought processes um, or your, you know, mother or father issues or whatever is going on there. Um, in the same way that if you decided, you know, I'm going to go on this um, sort of Times radio show and have a chat with them about something, you'd be very careful about what you said. Mm. You would use that to push your message. Right, um, and you wouldn't be too scrupulous about answering their questions because their questions are set to trip you up. Well, here you've got a device that's set up basically to constantly trip you up into revealing a list of exploitable characteristics. 
which can then be trolled so that you'll keep engaging further, or which can then be sold on to an advertiser or whatever. So I would say change the terms on which you engage with it, change your positionality in relation to it. If you find yourself picking up the phone because you're bored, find something else to do with that boredom. Get a cat. Don't get a cat. No, get, get cats. Cats are good. But I would honestly say, if we're going to be scripturient, right, which means having a violent desire to write, if that's what's going to happen to us, we're becoming integrated into the system of writing. Okay. I, you know, as a writer, I feel a bit competitive about that. I want people to stop that writing right away and go away. But if they, if, if people do want to do that, I would say, Think about what else you could be doing with writing. You know, you, we, we're not going to build Utopia today, but you could do something for yourself. If you want to write something down, one of the things I found useful was when I was having thoughts, you know, Richard Seymour's thoughts uh, about whatever the issue of the day happens to be. And I realized, look, the internet probably doesn't need these thoughts uh, because first of all, nine times out of 10, I'm going to be wrong in one way or another. Okay. That's just a given. Um, and also, you know, there are ways in which you can be right, but also still stupid, mm-hmm. like emotionally unintelligent or whatever. And also there could be ways in which you're not actually sure what you're trying to say. I keep a journal for that. I, when I have thoughts about whether it's, you know, like Depp or Heard or, 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 or some race scandal or something, uh, something where I think my thoughts um, are not usefully posed as an intervention because I actually have a quite a complicated response to this. And also I might end up fighting with people who I like and respect, and I don't want to do that. I go to my journal and I write down what I think in an unvarnished way. And sometimes something creative comes out of that. Sometimes I think, and sometimes I end up uh, contradicting myself and that could be useful. Well, okay. Not everybody wants to write in a journal. I'm just giving you an example. Mm. Like You could do the, you know, have you um, seen the Wong Kar Wai movie in the mood for love? No. Great film. Um, and there's basically one bit where the main character goes to a tree and whispers their secret into the hollow of a tree. Um, and that's what I do with my cat when I've got a thought which shouldn't be tweeted. I'm just like, come here. Got it. No, I, I need to write it down because it's like, it's a bit like the guy who doesn't want to flush. That is too beautiful to flush. Oh God, right? Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? So I have to write this stuff down, otherwise I'll lose it. You know, and it's uh, it's it's something about the neurotic relationship to death that I have. You know, <laughs> ultimately, I as a writer, I, I always think, uh, but but I haven't written the thing, right? The thing that's gonna like, because I'm, you know, like I've got a few decades if I'm lucky, and I need to write the thing that will will be like. That, that will Which allow will live me forever. to, yeah, well, or not live forever because nothing is going to live forever, and we're all, you know, doomed within a hundred billion years or whatever it is, um, and probably much, much sooner than that. But just enough for me to say I didn't completely waste my time, right? So I have a, a sort of, uh, a, a, you know, I, I need to conserve everything. I need to write it all down, um, and uh, you know, uh, somehow eventually use it in something. Um, so, but other people might find uh, it helpful to write songs, poems, um, write letter to somebody. Um, you know, um, uh, do some exercise, have a fruit cup, whatever. Make a salsa. Uh, yeah, I, actually, salsa is pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah, something like that. So, what I'm what I'm saying is, um, when you find yourself feeling compelled 
by something that actually, even though you know this is not going to be a pleasurable experience and this will actually end up cost, costing you something emotionally and psychically, leaving you exhausted. Give yourself just that uh, you know interval in which to say, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to leave that. And I've always uh, regretted it when, and I, this is not just about Twitter. This is about anything. Wherever you find yourself, like with a friend, a partner, whatever, like, and you find yourself starting to lose your temper or rising to say something, you know you probably shouldn't. <laughs> Giving yourself like five seconds just to say, um, do I really want to do this? You know, I would suggest to people when they feel a compulsive urge and they need to take a little break and reflect, mm -hmm. subscribe to Navara Media and watch our quality videos, such as this one. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture, and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramedia.com forward slash support.